Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of the Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by Sean Walker of Simple Co. Hello. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. How are you, man? Doing great. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, Timothy Tabor, Aaron Buys, Sean McHenry, Matt Bange, Eric at the Poplar Shop, Joel Eli, Steve Beckman, and David Moncada. Thank you for listening and for the support that you have for the show. If you'd like to support the show, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. So let's get right into it. Guy, what's your first question? I've got a question here. It doesn't say who it's from. But it says, I've been enjoying the podcast and all the content you produce on your YouTube and Instagram accounts. And I wanted to ask a question about plywood. I'm wondering what's the best way to make sure that the plywood is square before breaking it down to more manageable pieces for the table saw. I know you shouldn't really trust that the factor edges are square. So I'm just a little confused on how you get the sheet square if you don't have a reliable edge to reference off of. I don't have a track saw in my tool collection yet, so I'm using a circular saw and a straight edge. I might be overthinking this and confusing myself, but if you can provide some insight or a good way of accomplishing this task, that would be awesome. Thanks for the great info you guys provide. Great question. Yes, it is. Everything in woodworking works off a reference face, whether that's a board or plywood. So if you don't have a track saw, and you're using plywood, he's absolutely correct. You don't want to trust the factory edges. One, they're going to be kind of beat up and nasty anyways uh, and a little rough, and you can't trust that they're perfectly straight, nor can you trust that the ends are square to the sides. What I like to do, even before I had a track saw, what I would always do is I would take about maybe a quarter inch off the long edge and all I was using was a straight edge and a circular saw. That was it. It was a shop-made circular saw guide. I'm sure you've seen them where you take a piece of MDF or hardboard and you put a, a long piece of wood on there that you know is straight and you cut along it and you get a nice zero clearance there. That is the first step is to get your reference edge. Go all the way down the, the board. After you get that done, if you have a framing square you can trust, put that framing square up against the edge you've just cut and then take your straight edge and put it against that framing square on the cross cut. Does that make sense? Yep. I hope. And then you put it on there. Now you've got, make that cut, and now you've got two square edges. It's pretty easy from there out. I mean, breaking down a sheet of plywood, if you don't have a track saw, you're almost always going to have to break it down into smaller chunks and then work it on your table saw afterwards. Mm-hmm. I found before I got the track saw and parallel guides, that's how I used to do it. And sometimes I wouldn't even use a, a straight edge. I would just cut the thing up into smaller pieces mm-hmm. and just do it that way. But you still have to work off a, a, a good reference edge. So after I broke it down and, you know, let's say two or three pieces, then I could take a mm-hmm. straight edge and just make one straight cut that was only like, you know, three or four feet. It was a lot easier than trying to make an eight foot cut. Right. You have a track saw, don't you, Hui? I do, yes. How did you do it before you got the track saw? I guess is the best way to ask this. The way I did it, I didn't even use a circular saw with a zero clearance straight edge initially because I didn't even think to do that initially. (laughs) Um, The way I did it was I broke it down rough with a circular saw and then I went to the table saw to clean everything up. Yeah. But how did you get everything? If you broke it down like that, how did you get it all square? You know, I used a, a square and a straight edge, but I didn't have a zero clearance. I just had a straight edge that I used, like a Bora clamp. Have you ever used those? Yep. I had the same thing, the the Bora. And then I got a track saw, so I didn't even think of using the zero clearance trick with the with the with the circular saw. Yeah, before I got the zero did the zero clearance thing, I was just using a, a straight edge clamp. That's exactly what I was doing too. That's all I was doing. But the problem is that you just don't get a very nice finished edge. No. Doing it that way. Yeah. Making a zero clearance 
uh, insert for your circular saw. Now, mind you, it does take away from the depth of cut, but if you're just breaking down plywood, it's more than enough. Yeah. And having that zero clearance really prevents the fibers from the plywood from from fraying out. Before I had a track saw, I was just using like a, a Bora clamp that was a straight edge. Tried to get it as square as I could and rip it down and then take it down to final size on the table saw. Sean? Uh, when I first uh, started breaking down sheet goods before, way before I got my Makita track saw, I would I think I went to Lowe's or Home Depot, one of the two, and I would have them break down the sheet goods into pieces that were smaller, but you know, oversized a few inches length and width. And uh, with the smaller pieces, I would then use the straight edge clamp with a circular saw and break them down even closer, but then still use the table saw just because I found it a pain in the butt to transport the four by eight sheet. So I would just have uh, the home home center use their big panel saw to break it down into smaller, more manageable pieces before using the edge clamping straight edge from Bora or whatever their, their name is and the circular saw and then off to the table saw. Now I just use the Makita track saw. Ooh, Mr. Fancy Pants with his Makita track saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of the uh, track saws guy. You may want to look into them. The, the track saw really, if you do a lot of work with sheet goods, track saw is a wonderful thing to have. And a very long track is a good thing to have too. I was the same way, Sean. I used to have the, the, the guys at Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever cut it down for me. But I mean, you want to talk about a nasty edge. Those blades were just dull as hell and they're just, it'd get all chewed up and nasty. And they cut so fast. They just pulled that thing yeah. as fast as they could. <laughs> yeah, but it is easier to transport. Now that I have a pickup truck, I just get full sheets. It's much easier. A lot of a lot of sheet goods too, if you're buying a more premium sheet good, let's say you're getting something like a B face or an A face, not like the D face you get at, at Home Depot or Lowe's. The sheets are oversized. Yes. They're typically 48 and a half and 90 by 96 and a half. You usually get an extra half an inch because they know you're going to cut off an edge. Mm-hmm. So that's another tip there. So... Who's got the next question? I believe I do. Hey guys, podcast has been great, but it feels like forever since there was a question about finishing. My question is about what kinds of finishes you guys use on drawer boxes, specifically for something like a kitchen cabinet, a shop cabinet, and a drawer box and a furniture piece like a dresser or a nightstand. I know there are concerns about off-gassing of oil-based finishes inside of cabinets. Curious about what you recommend. Uh, That's from Dorian, I believe his name is. So I guess to uh, my method for the drawer boxes for, let's say, some wall cabinet or, or something like that, or it could be for a kitchen cabinet, there are several different ways that you can, can finish them and not have to worry about the off-gassing of an oil-based finish. So for instance, on the wall cabinet that I just made, uh, I made the drawer boxes out of maple and uh, I put a coat of a two-pound cut shellac. Now, obviously, if you didn't have a two pound, I would probably end up applying a couple of coats if I had a one and a half pound. Um, But on the outside of the boxes, drawer boxes, after the shellac dried, and I did put the shellac on the drawer bottom as well as all three of the maple sides, the the back and the two sides. After the shellac dried, I waxed the outside of the drawer box because I didn't use any hardware and the the smoother, slicker sides is going to help that slide smoothly in the opening. But an alternative to shellac for drawer boxes, whether you're doing kitchen cabinets or or something like that, is you can go with the water-based poly. That's an option that's going to not off-gas and smell once it's dried. And another thing, if you're using a lighter color material like maple or whatnot and you want to keep the lighter appearance, the water-based poly is a good option for that. Uh, Another thing that I've done for like shop cabinets for my assembly table is I've used pre-finished plywood for the drawer boxes. So that way I didn't have to worry about it. Um, but I did not edge band the uh, the drawer boxes on the, the shop furniture. So pre-finished plywood's an option. And um, and of course, you can always spray lacquer. Uh, and after that cures, you're not going to have to worry about the, the same off-gassing. Uh, but on the drawer fronts, that will just depend on the project and what I'm doing. If I'm staining, dyeing, or using some sort of oil-based finish, I'm, I'm just going to go with whatever. But on the boxes, that's pretty much my methods from a shellac to a water-based poly to pre-finished ply to possibly using lacquer. Guy, what's your methods for pre-finishing or finishing boxes? Dorian asked three specific questions. Let's talk about kitchen cabinets. I've built a couple kitchens. 
I'm getting ready to build another one here for myself pretty soon. Uh, I typically make the drawer sides out of maple and it's half inch and I round over the tops. I don't put finish on them. I know that sounds awful. I don't ever put finish on the drawer boxes themselves, regardless for any project. I just never have. I never saw the need for it, to be honest with you. Kitchen cabinet, if I was to put a finish on it, I'd probably use shellac, uh, mainly because it's very easy to be repaired. You know, if you're putting knives or forks or whatever in there, it's going to get banged up and it's going to be much easier to repair than, let's say, a water-based finish or an oil-based finish or any type of finish. As far as a shop cabinet goes, I usually make those on a maple plywood. I should say any drawer I make is pretty much half-inch stock. A shop cabinet is usually half-inch plywood. Again, no finish on it, no edge banding or anything like that. And a drawer box and a furniture piece like a dresser or nightstand is a lot like the kitchen cabinets. I'm just using half-inch material, dovetailed in the front. The back is a, a, a piece that's rabbited in or dadoed into the, into the sides. I don't dovetail the back of drawers. Don't see a need for it. And again, I typically don't put finish on it. I have a couple times. And a couple times I have put it on, It's it's been shellac. Again, mainly because of the ease of repairability. Yeah. Hui? So I don't finish my <laughs> my drawer boxes. For a piece of fine furniture that uh, either has a, a green green finger joint or dovetailed whatnot, I don't finish the inside. If it's made of solid wood and I just uh, put wax on it, paraffin wax on it and melt it in, and it just makes the drawer slides uh, drawer sides slide really nice in its opening. When it comes to shop cabinets, you know, I'm just using half inch plywood and I don't even bother to finish it. And I've never made a whole kitchen cabinet, but cabinets that generally are inside, you know, I'll do some type of uh, machined corner joint for the drawer boxes and then uh, use water-based poly just to spray them down just to give a coat or they're pre-finished. Just to you know, kind of t- make it easy. I, I understand the whole doing shellac on the inside and make it easily repairable, but uh, I, I hope to never repair the drawer boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never want to do that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's just really simple. Yeah, wh- I get. I think we can all agree. Whatever we put on, we're keeping it thin. We're not building it up. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, keep it nice and thin. Don't worry about it too much. You know, he asked that question too about off gassing of oil-based finish, after a couple weeks, there's no more off-gassing anymore. If you let them dry, that shouldn't be an issue. Like, so you're saying an oil-based finish won't smell after two weeks? If it, if it's dried properly, it really shouldn't. Because I've got a wall cabinet that I made with uh, water locks. I mean, it smelled- Water locks is stinky stuff. Yeah, good Lord. It. I mean, it smelled eight months later. That's why I had to pull it down and, and recoat everything with shellac. It just would not stop smelling. Mm. Huh. Well, I, I think it's probably not, if it's, well, I don't know. Water locks is very stinky stuff. Yeah, it is. But uh, I've put, you know, oil-based stuff on the inside of cabinets before. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, there, there's no smell anymore. Um, we, you got the next one. What do you got for us? Nick writes, question about workbench tops. I'm planning to build a workbench in the near future. I've seen plenty of dog holes and understand the basic pros and cons, but I'm considering a T-track top. Your thoughts on the this are appreciated. Okay. I've used both dog holes and T-tracks, and in fact, my assembly table incorporates both. I've seen and used T-tracks for jig making, like work surface holding, measuring fixtures. Uh, there are vertical hold downs that you can get for them, inline clamps that you can use with T-tracks, just a myriad of clamps made by a whole bunch of different companies, okay? My assembly also has this array of 20 millimeter dog holes that are drilled 96 millimeters on center and they're all square to each other. And this is actually based off of the Festool LR32 hole system and their MFT table. Don't ask me why. I know there's a reason why it's that 32 number, but anyway. There are a bunch of clamping tools that are available to use with this dog hole array and things like cam clamps, hold downs, stops. I particularly like the Festool clamping elements. Guy, I think you have them. Yep. which are an inline cam clamp for the dog holes. And I know Bessie and Armor Tools make similar inline clamps. A bunch of other companies make them as well. And a lot of them are really good. I also use the dog holes in my traditional workbench, but they work in a different way. Dog holes in a traditional workbench are called holdfasts or used like holdfasts. Uh, the holdfast uses the thickness of the bench to wedge the post 
of the hold fast into the dog hole. And this gives you a tremendous amount of hold down pressure and it's really useful for things like chopping and planing operations. A lot of hand tool users use this type of a workbench. But the workbench needs to be of substantial thickness for the hold fast to work properly. I would actually suggest looking into using both in your workbench. If you don't see yourself doing like a whole bunch of hand tool work, then I think this is going to be okay for you. This is going to work well for you. My assembly table has both T-Track along the edges, and that's for vertical clamping or face clamping and for inline clamping as well along the perimeter. And then I also have a dog hole array that's made out of three quarter inch MDF. And that's the work surface that's supported by some plywood ribbing that I have underneath. And this gives me access to both the top and the bottom of the dog holes. And this is the type of setup I have, and it, it's worked really well for me. And Guy, I believe you have something similar for your outfeed table. Am I correct on that? My outfeed table is an MFT top. Right. And so that's yeah. that's pretty much kind of similar to what I have in terms of like the style of workbench I have for my assembly table. Next question is is he's asking about workbench tops and T tracks on a on a traditional workbench, I don't think would work. I mean I think workbench, I think like a hand tool workbench. I've got three work surfaces in my shop. I've got an assembly table. Mm -hmm. I've got a clamping table, which is my MFT or my Festool MFT top. And then I've got a workbench uh, for my hand tool use. Now my hand tool workbench, which is a, a short little bench, it's very heavy and it's got a very thick top. I have no dog holes in it at all whatsoever because I don't need them. I can clamp on the edge. I use a, a stop that I can put in my vise and I clamp the other end and that gives me a planing stop. I've never really seen the, I don't do a ton of hand tool work either. So it's not, it hasn't been an issue yet. I figured if I ever need to, I've got a couple hold fast, but I've never had the need to use one yet. And I figure if I do someday, I'll just drill a hole in it. Right. But I just, I haven't had a use, use for it yet. As far as T-tracks go, T-tracks on the top of the bench, I would not do that because all they're going to do is collect crap. Yeah, you're going to be cleaning them out constantly. Anytime you try to put your hold down in the T-track, it's going to get stuck in crap that's next to one of the, the screws you use to hold it down. And you're going to be picking through all that stuff. It's just not worth it. I've got T-track on my clamping bench, which again is my Festival MFT top. That's for vertical stuff. If I need to clamp something in a vertical fashion, that's the only place I have T-track. That's really all I've got, uh, Sean. I only have one workbench that has dog holes. My assembly table doesn't have anything drilled into it. I would love to eventually put some sort of T-track in my assembly table. And that's mainly because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, what do I have the most issues with holding stuff down? And it would be when I'm using the domino, just holding the, the boards down and a couple of other little issues like that. And having a T-track on the assembly table all the way at the end or something like that would be pretty cool. I actually wouldn't mind doing that but I currently don't have any T-Track or any sort of hold downs to go in a T-Track. That's one thing that I wouldn't mind investigating, but as far as putting it on a work traditional workbench, I wouldn't. I think just dog holes in an end or a side vise would be all that I would do on a workbench. And I don't even have, the dog holes on my bench aren't even all the way, drilled all the way through because I have the, uh, the drawers in the front. And I'm actually thinking about modifying that a bit, removing the top drawer and then drilling the dog holes through that. T-Track would be cool for me on maybe my assembly table, but not the workbench. I have T-Track on my Festool top mm -hmm. that can be used on the top, but I never use it. You know why? It's always full of crap. <laughs> I can never get the clamps in there. And I, I guess I'm just too lazy to clean them out. And I see these guys, you know, on YouTube and Instagram building these big assembly tables that have all these tracks in it. I'm like, Jesus, oh, it's, it's just going to be a bunch of crap. In there. Yeah. I would just like to have one strip and uh, probably at the end or, or something on the far side of it, you know, just to hold pieces down or something to be able to, you know, maybe I need to drill some, some dog holes in the assembly table or something, just something that I can press the board up against when using the domino, because right now I have to use the quick clamps and that's a pain in the butt. Yeah. My assembly table only has, well, has T-Track both on the top edge and the front edge. And you're completely right, guy. It always gets clogged up. I mean, I, I unclog it to use it, but it is kind of a pain. I can't see using T-Track on a traditional workbench, though. No. I could see it on like a workbench that's used for, say, hand power tools or something like that. Yeah. 
if Nick feels the need for it, I mean, I say go for it. And if it doesn't work out for you, I mean, all it is is a three quarter inch wide by three eighths inch deep slot that can just be filled in later yep. if you find out it's not for you. Yep. Or you just like me, you just don't use the damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> So who you also mentioned before, the 32 millimeter system and why that is or how it came to be. Now, this is something I read a long time ago. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm. it makes a lot of sense. After World War II, they had to rebuild most of Europe mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And somebody, some very smart person standardized things. That's why they, and they built everything in increments of 32 millimeters. Hmm just to make things easy. Right. So everybody was building stuff the same way. That's why they're referred to as Euro cabinets. Mm-hmm. Now that may be, that may not be true. I read it on the internet, so it must be true. So it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was actually, I can't remember who wrote the article, but it wasn't some guy living in his mother's basement. It was a, it was a real person and it was a really long, lengthy, lengthy article. That's what I remember it being. So... Mm-hmm. Just a, a fun fact that nobody cares about. So Thank I you care. For that I care. Yeah. <laughs> so who's next? I think I'm next. And this is from Eric at the Poplar Shop. I think he's Poplar Shop on Instagram. Mm-hmm. He actually sent us seven questions. <laughs> Eric, I'd love to answer each one of these questions for you today, but we're just going to answer one for you today and then we'll get to the others later. His first question is. What's your favorite wood species to work with and why? Before you answer, yeah, I was going to say, can we take a guess at what your favorite wood is? And I got a guess. Yeah, that would be a fun. That'd be fun. We guess what my favorite wood is. And don't say if I'm right or wrong until Sean gives it walnut. My guess is genuine mahogany. Sean, winner, oh. winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> genuine South American mahogany or Honduran mahogany or whatever you want to call it. If and he knows that because I've talked about it before. Yep. If if you have ever used genuine mahogany, you will understand why so much furniture was made out of it. It cuts like butter. It's not super hard, but it's not soft either. It's just really easy to work, especially with hand tools. It's very easy to shape. It's very easy to finesse the joints using very little effort. It can be kind of a, a bear to hand plane. You really have to pay attention to the grain direction because it will tear out. But I've, I've had the pleasure of making one project out of genuine mahogany, which <laughs> was a, a wall clock I made, a green and green clock. Mm. And I, I just fell in love with it. I just wish it wasn't so expensive. I'd make everything out of mahogany. That was my, that's my favorite wood to work with and why I like to work with it. Just because it's, it's easily workable. It finishes nice. You have to use it to appreciate it. Kui, what about you? Well, I have not had... Oh, well, oh, wait a second. I want to guess what it is. Yes, you guess and then Sean guess. Okay. I'm going to guess cherry. Ah, uh, Sean, you're going to say cherry? I was going to say cherry, but I'm going to stick with cherry as well. You're going to say cherry as well? Yes. Well, I actually prefer using walnut uh, over Ooh. cherry, but I haven't used walnut as much because it's just not as prevalent where I am. We have a lot more cherry. And cherry would be my second choice of my favorite. The only issue is that cherry just tends to burn quite a bit, whereas walnut uh, doesn't do it as much, or at least I can't tell. I would say the burning is due to operator error. Yeah, probably so. (laughs) Uh, Uh, but yeah, I really enjoy working with cherry because, or excuse me, walnut, uh, because it works really well and I enjoy the smell. I enjoy its density. It cuts well on all my machines. The air dried works a lot better than the kiln dried. Does it? It's, it's easier to work. Yeah. And is that a hardness issue? Probably. Okay. But the colors mm-hmm. on air dried are amazing. You'll get purples and blues and like these bluish green colors sometimes. It's just beautiful. And when you hit it with oil, Mm. it gets really super dark really quickly, much more so than kiln dried. Mm. I did not know that. Sean, how about you? What do you like? Oh, let us guess. I'm going to say cherry. I'm going to say curly cherry. Ah, well... 
I'm going to say I've not had a, a whole lot of projects made out of it, but Sapili is my one of my favorites, if not the favorite. Really, I love the way that it looks with this with some age, the way it, it darkens. I just like working with it, and I don't mind the smell. I actually like the smell of it while milling it. A, a close second would be curly cherry, especially now that I've got a helical head. I won't hate it as much. Sapili <laughs> is my is probably my favorite, and there is one batch of cherry that I got probably three or four years ago that was milled in the 60s and sat in a barn until probably 2014 or 15 when I bought it. It was so dark and beautiful. That was probably my favorite cherry batch, but I guess to stick to the original question, Sapili is my my favorite. See, I, I I don't like the look of Sapili. I don't like that ribbon thing going on. I kind of like that. I do too. I yeah. Yeah, it's it's personal preference. I just don't like the look of it. Is it is it easy to work? Yeah, I think so. I made a uh, a bow saw out of it and uh, all kinds of boxes out of it. I've not made anything too large out of it. I think I made maybe a cabinet out of it. Yeah, I just I love the way that it looks. Have you have you you guys ever worked with African mahogany? No, but yeah, we know how you feel about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't look at my dovetail blanket chest because it was made out of quarter sawn African mahogany. See, but that looks like almost looks like sapili. That's why I brought it up. Oh, okay. How is it to work with, Sean? It's easy to work with, I think, as far as cutting the dovetails. I did get quite a bit of tear out on it, but again, straight knives, what can you do? It wasn't that bad. I mean, it wasn't. It was easy to cut with the, for all the dovetails and, and the, the pins to clean up. wasn't bad at all. What, what do you guys have the most of in inventory in your shop, other than for what you bought for, you know, your 8,000 shares, we... <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you do you, do you keep an inventory of lumber in your shop i keep a small inventory yeah what, what do you keep what i have is actually enough pecan to to make a, a table if i wanted to i've got enough walnut to make a table if i wanted to i have enough cherry to make a table if i wanted to and then i have some some of the lighter woods that are off cuts of red oak white oak maple got a bunch of basswood that I use for drawer sides, things like that. You use basswood for drawer sides, but for small drawer side, small drawers. Yeah. I got a, I, I got it for real cheap from a cabinet shop that was going out of business and I just mm-hmm. bought a whole bunch. They had basswood. So I just bought a whole bunch of it. Do you, do you use the basswood for Kumiko? Yes, I do. Yep. Yeah. That's what I use. Yep. So what about you, Sean? What do you, what do you keep? Pretty much the domestics that I get around here. I've, I'm, I, I got to go do a, a run for some more lumber because I'm running out, but cherry, a few maple boards and walnut. I've got probably 50 board feet of cherry, probably 20 board feet of walnut and 10 board feet of maple. And uh, I need to go get some more. What about you? Yeah, I keep my own personal stash. It's all almost all air dried, but I keep typically one to 200 board feet of cherry and walnut and i have soft maple hard maple and then i've got some various assorted boards i've got some white oak uh, you know it's plain sawn white oak i've got some some ash too Mm. it's almost like an olive ash it's almost like spalted but it's not spalted it's it's got some colors and it It looks pretty cool i've also uh my friend tab here in town gave me a couple big huge i guess you'd call them slabs of uh curly ash and it's just gorgeous but boy is it a bear to work with wow uh that's pretty much what i keep and if it's a if it's a project for a customer i usually order the the wood i don't i don't dip into my air dried stock for that no i don't blame you i much prefer air dried over the the kiln dried and there's so many people in town here selling air dried wood Mm -hmm. dirt cheap like walnut for two bucks a board foot cheap that's what i get you know, cherry is the same thing. It's it's really cheap. So mm. we could talk about this all day. I think, Sean, you have the next question. That I do. And this one is coming from me. I got a question. I want to get started in spraying finishes, paint, top coats, whatever. Whatever you can spray, I want to spray it. Okay. I know nothing about this topic. I know you two uh, spray finishes quite often. So school me on uh, getting started in uh, spraying, whether that be about the type of equipment, you know, the the size of the unit, the whatever words you guys use to describe the the mechanism for the HVLP and the differences. Give me a uh, a quick one on one on getting started with spraying. We sure. 
<laughs> so I use a turbine system and originally I had a three stage turbine system and the more stages there are, the more air the unit can push and the more air the unit can push, the thicker the viscosity is that you can actually push through and get atomized through the gun. The gun that I have now is a five stage. And the difference between the three stage and the five stage is that I can shoot paints through the five stage and get away with minimal amounts of thinning to almost no thinning, depending on the thickness or viscosity of the material. Whereas the three stage, I almost always had to thin a thicker viscosity material, latex paints, milk paints, things like that. You've sprayed milk paint? Yes, I have. Yep. I've never done that. General finishes milk paint. Okay. It's much more forgiving yeah. than the traditional milk paints. The three stage worked fine if you're able to experiment and thin your material. And you're going to have to play with those levels as to how much you're going to thin. And generally speaking, with the materials, with latex paints that have to be thinned a bunch, it's good to use a material called Floetrol. And I believe that's a leveling agent that you add to the material so that it levels out and atomizes well. If you're wanting to do mostly clears, shellac, water-based polyurethane, then I think a three-stage is going to be pretty good, except for the fact that when you have to go for a thicker viscosity material, you'll have to thin it out. You can still do it. It's just you need to thin it. With a five-stage, you have so much more power behind the gun, so much more airflow behind the gun that you can atomize and you have tons of adjustability. You can atomize almost anything. The five stages are also much more expensive than the three stages. Guy, do you have anything that you could add to to what I'm talking about? Well, it really it really depends on what you want to shoot through the gun, Sean. If you plan on using like a latex paint, my first HVLP system was a was an Erlex. Mm-hmm. You know, their base one was like three hundred dollars, and it worked great. And I think that is a single stage turbine, and I shot latex through it. I had to thin the crap out of it, but I did was able to shoot latex. If you're going to shoot, you know, just like shellac, lacquer, that kind of stuff, that's really all you need. Mm-hmm. And it's more than enough to, to atomize that properly. When you start getting, you know, there's two stage, three stage, four stage, five stage, good middle of the road piece of equipment, like we said, is a three stage turbine. Mm-hmm. And I think those are typically like, around six, six and a half PSI that you have in the gun. And just to give you an example, I think most of the five stages are like nine, nine and a half, 10. And that's how much pressure is inside the, the, the actual gun itself. So it's, it's coming out faster and it's atomizing quicker. Something like the Erlex, if you just want to get your feet wet, that's actually a very good system to get your feet wet with. I know you use a lot of shellac and things like that, man. Shooting shellac is wonderful. Yeah. It's silky smooth. There's You never get brush marks. You never have any drips or anything. You can get drips if you're not careful with it. But it dries really super fast. And um, that's as far as the equipment goes. As far as the shooting the stuff itself, it's actually very intuitive to use any one of these systems. You've got a control that controls the amount of air. Some guns have the ability to control the amount of air going in, but they all have a, a control that lets you put a certain amount of liquid through the gun. Using that, you basically want to be about, well, I usually take a piece of cardboard and I set it up. You want about a six inch fan if you're about six inches away from that. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. There's also different size tips that you can get. You know, for example, like in the Erlex, I think you can get like a one and a half and a two. Tip size, the larger the tip, the higher viscosity you can shoot through the gun. Like for a latex, you'd want to use a two. Yep. Like for a shellac, though, you'd want to use the 1.5. Now, I I tip currently have a three-stage Fuji. It's not as powerful as Huiz, but for shooting 90% of what I shoot, it's perfect. Right. It does a great job. And I got the full kit of tips. So I think I've got from like one millimeter up to two millimeters. So I've got like a one, a 1.3, a 1.5, a 1.8, and a two, I think is what it came with. So most of the time I'm using the 1.5. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes I drop down to the 1.3. If I'm shooting like a pound and a half cut shellac, that's what I'm using on it. You can actually, with that, just shooting in the shop, and I don't want to set up these big tents full of things so I don't get crap everywhere. I just set the gun up because mine mine also has on the, the hose, it has an adjustment for how much air pressure is going into the gun. So I turn that down a little bit. I turn the, the amount of volume of the, the liquid going down, and I get about a two to three inch fan. Now, the Earl-X does not have the airflow control, correct? So the lower models generally don't have that airflow control. Correct. And But with, like I said, the Fuji 3 stage I have, it's got a, a, a petcock on the, the hose itself. It's not in the gun, but it's right before the gun on the hose. And I turn that thing down to about half, and I turn the volume down on the liquid, and I turn the fan down to, I, I get the fan about three inches. So I can spray something without covering half my shop in plastic and worrying about all that stuff. So it, it's very convenient. On some of the more expensive models too, they don't have an air control on the gun or the hose, but they actually have an adjustment on the unit itself. Right. And I think you've got you've got one of the the, the high end Graco's, right, Mister Fancy Pants? We yes, Mister Fancy Pants has one of the high end Graco's. Yeah. The the power adjustment or the air pressure adjustment is actually on the machine itself, and what's on the gun is the fan control, so how wide the fan is. And also how much material gets fed through. Yeah. The material flow and you can increase the fan size so you get a really nice mist or you can really make it concentrated. Doesn't the Graco also only turn on when you squeeze the gun? Yes, they have a function of that too. You use that? Continuous function and then, yeah, I do. I do actually. It, it helps keep the machine cool. And also yeah. helps with the noise in the shop because they can they can get kind of loud. They sound like a shop vac. Yeah, it's not like a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Um, another thing, Sean, on the like the Erlex, the Erlex gun is a bleed type gun. Mm -hmm. So there's always air coming out the nozzle. Yep. While on the 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 more expensive units, when you start getting into like the three stage, the four stage, the five stage. Those are non-bleed type guns. They'll vent. They'll vent at the machine generally. Yeah, they'll vent at the machine, not at the not at the gun, because there's you know the pressure builds up inside the thing. Although it'll go. Okay. I prefer non-bleed guns. Yeah, so would I. Do you have an air compressor, Sean? Uh, I used to have an uh, eighty gallon, but sold it for a smaller. Now just got a pancake. Okay. All right, because they they have these things. They're they're called conversion guns, and they're HVLP also. But you have to have a pretty powerful air compressor to run them. But they they run at a much higher pressure. We were talking, you know, a five stage at like you know nine nine and a half ten. I think yours is like nine or nine and a half, right, Hui? That's correct. These things are going fifteen sixteen psi. So the atomization is really, really good on them. Mm -hmm. That's the benefit of them. Question about spraying latex paint or just paint in general. You you were mentioning when we were speaking earlier about tinted lacquer instead. Is that what you were saying? Correct. You can get, if you go to like the Sherwin-Williams Pro Store, not the regular you know residential stores, they'll have a pro store and they'll have water-based lacquer and you can get it pigmented. Okay. If you want to get colors or just plain white, that's fine. I really like it, by the way. It's good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I bought a, a gallon of it, and uh, I just did one project with it, and it was really, really nice. The reason I can't shoot lacquer in the house is because lacquer stinks. It's nasty smelling stuff. And if you're shooting in your garage, your whole house will smell like lacquer for a week yeah but the the water-based stuff's not bad yeah the water-based hardly has any smell at all yeah uh but you have to remember too that if you're shooting the clear lacquer it's water white just like water-based polyurethane is water white it imparts no color okay if it's clear so you can get just regular water you know water-based lacquer but it's like water-based poly it doesn't impart any color so there's no it won't impart a, an amber tone to it Put down some shellac before you shoot the, the lacquer. The lacquer is a much tougher finish than the, than the shellac is. The reason I'm looking at that 
at uh, getting a spray gun or set up HVLP is because I've got some uh, built-in cabinets that I need to make coming up soon. And I'd rather spray if I can. Now I'm going to be, it's going to be two pieces. The top is going to be the bookshelf and the bottom is going to be the cabinet. So I can spray the cabinet part, have it, install it, and then build and spray the uh, the top or just build them at the same time as spray them separately because I don't have a, a whole lot of room in my, in my garage. I mean, I can make a 10 foot by 10 foot section if I had to, which I think would give me enough room to do this. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I do another podcast. <laughs> really? One of the five? One of the five, yeah. Uh, one of the other gentlemen, not not Freddie, but Justin. Justin De Palma, yeah. Yeah. He really knows a lot about spraying stuff. And, yeah. you know, if you've got questions, Sean, I'd recommend you know, about certain things. He He might impart some of that knowledge to you. He might not. He's kind of a, he can be a little bit you know, difficult sometimes. I'm just kidding. He's a nice guy. And he, he's really knowledgeable on spraying. He's probably one of the most knowledgeable person I know on spraying. Cool. Sounds good. Um, sounds like I got some, I got to look at the budget first to determine what I can afford in my budget and then go with the, the best that I can afford. Yeah. You'll actually have to spend some more money, Sean. Yeah, I know. I'm recovering from the, from the head for helical head. Well, I think that'll answer that. So, uh, we, what do you got for us? All right. The last question is from Jay Crick, and he writes, mentioned last week some tips regarding wood movement and the process of keeping a tabletop flat, and that the two most important aspects were to allow the wood to acclimate to your shop and to properly mill the wood. I was wondering if you guys could speak a bit more on that. For example, how long do you allow the wood to acclimate to your shop? And are there any tips you're willing to share or give examples of your process in regards to milling? How long is it okay to wait after the first milling to take it down to final dimensions? My shop currently is non-insulated, detached garage outside Chicago, where weather, humidity can change rapidly from one day to the next. All right, so how long do you allow the wood to acclimate to your shop? The short answer to that is when the equilibrium moisture content of your wood equals the equilibrium moisture content of your shop. The long answer, (laughs) what do I mean by that? EMC, as it's known, equilibrium moisture content is the point at which your work material is neither gaining nor losing moisture. And EMC is dependent on temperature, the relative humidity of your shop, and the material, okay, the species of the material. I bought like this $10 hygrometer, and a hygrometer reads relative humidity, and I got one that also reads temperature. You can go online, and you can type in EMC calculator, and type in the temperature and relative humidity, and that'll calculate what your shop's equilibrium moisture content is, all right? It's good to know that, just generally, just where your shop kind of hovers so that you have an understanding. (laughs) Anyway, then you can get a cheap moisture content, an expensive one, all right? I have actually an expensive one that can read like an inch deep into the wood, but you don't need that. You can just get an inexpensive moisture reader, and you have this scrap piece of wood that's been in your shop for a long time. Take a moisture reading of that scrap piece of wood and then go to the new material that you have, preferably the same species, and see what that reading is. And then compare that to what, one, to each other, the old wood that's been in your shop for a long time and the new stuff. And then also kind of compare that to what the equal moisture content of your shop is. And that'll give you an understanding of where your shop is, what the moisture reader is reading, and what something that you have that's been in your shop for a long time is versus the new stuff. When the new stuff gets really close or is exactly the same in moisture content as the old stuff, then it's about time that you can start milling. Now, in terms of just the milling process, you know, just some tips to how how to let your wood acclimate. I cut rough cut my boards to length and width, and I just let them sit there for a couple of days. And during those couple of days, I'm just taking a moisture reading just to see how I'm doing. Then after that, once it's finally acclimated to my shop, I'll do an initial milling where I'll leave everything heavy about an eighth of an inch in thickness, width, so on and so forth. Then finally, as I need material, I'll go back, flatten, and then take it down to final thickness, making sure I'm taking an equal amount on on both sides of the face. And then I can cut it down to final width on the table saw and length. Sean, anything you can add to that? (laughs) Nope. You could probably bottle that up in a PDF and sell it as an ebook. That was quite a bit of information that was really good. But seriously, I mean, you if you want to follow some instructions, what you said was perfect. And it might be a couple of days. It might be a couple of weeks before that, you know, depending on where you get it and how, how it was treated, you know? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, how I handle it is I, as I get my lumber from the same place every time, 
I know how he air dries it before he sticks it in the kiln. I know what moisture content it's going to read. And I, I let it set in my shop. I don't have any any gauges or anything. I don't check the wood. I just let it set there for at least two to three weeks before using it. Uh, and then when I mill the lumber, I leave, like we was saying, an eighth or a little bit more proud uh, of the final thickness. Let it set for three to four days and then take it down to the final thickness. That's my technical way of making sure the lumber won't move, which is not very technical. But that's what I do anyways. Guy? Yeah, I, I really don't know if I can add a lot to that. I, I, I keep it really simple. I just bring my bring the inventory in. I empty out my wood rack. I put the new wood in and I put the wood I had in front of that. <laughs> and by the time by the time I get to the wood in the back, it's probably, you know, four to five months. Yeah. And it's acclimated. I have a little cheap $30 moisture meter and it's got, you know, provisions in there to put the specific density of the wood and this, that, and that. I don't care about any of that crap. Take a piece of wood that I've had in the shop for a while. I take a reading on it and then I put it to the piece of wood that, you know, I may have gotten two weeks ago that I, that I might want to use. And I just make sure that it's close to each other. As far as the number goes, I really don't care what the number is. The biggest thing that you're going to run into, Jay, is that you've got an uninsulated, detached garage. The humidity is changing, as you said, rapidly from one day to the next. The way I do it, even, you know, and I've got an insulated, attached garage, and the mechanicals for my house are actually in the garage. So, you know, the humidity is the same in my house pretty much as it is in my garage. I really don't worry about all that stuff. But still, the way I do it is a lot like Hui does. I, I'll, I'll take the rough lumber and I'll just get it flat. I really don't care what the thickness is. As long as it's thicker than what I'm trying to get out of it. I may have to resaw some stuff, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I'll get it to a rough dimension. I shouldn't say rough dimension, not to its final dimension but I get it flat on at least two sides, an edge and a face. Then I'll let it sit. And I typically don't touch it until I'm ready to use it. So let's say I'm making you know, a table. I'll rough mill all the parts, get them flat, and then I'll stick them on my sawhorses. And I'll just leave the stuff there. When I make the top, I go pull the material that I'm going to make the top with, mm-hmm. reflatten it, mill it the final length, glue up my top. Right. When I'm ready to make the apron parts, same thing. I go and grab the material I'm going to use and I mill it and use it and and cut the joinery that day. And that way I'm always dealing. And since I'm not a hand tool worker, I'm using machines 99% of the time. It's really important that I have really flat square stock because I'm always referencing off the cast iron of the machines. And if it's warped or cupped or whatever, my joinery is not going to come out right. right. And that's the reason I do it that way. And that's why my joinery typically is, you know, passable. That's the best advice. The best advice I can give you, Jay, is get some insulation in your garage yeah. and get something in there to get the humidity stabilized. I know that's easy for me to say because I'm not the one that has to do it. But if you have enough money, you can hire somebody to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I think also the the method which which I've tried to adopt, Guy, is that you get everything just roughly flattened, leave it off to the side. When you need it, you go and f- take it down to final thickness. And the benefit th- to that is that it's there. It's sitting. It's, it's continuously acclimating. And then when you need it, you go ahead and machine it. It's square. You do all the operations that you need to do on it while it's in its squarest form. Correct. And then by the time you get to the bottom of the stack, which is maybe the tabletop or, or something, well, you don't have to wait for that to acclimate. It's been there for however long it's taken you to get to that point. I, I can't remember where I learned that from. It was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. The main thing is, is you're releasing some of that initial moisture out of the wood by doing it that way. And it's going to move on you. The second time you mill it, it's not going to move as much, if that makes sense. Yep. There's some woods that are just really tough to keep flat. You know, the, the one I always have problems with is hard maple. It's got, sometimes it's got so much tension in it. It, it, it just, you cut it and it just goes, turns into a potato chip within 10 minutes. It can be, it can be a real bear to work with. And it can be um, something that's completely bone dry too. 
and it yeah, just yeah. has that internal tension. You know, just hard maple and stuff. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who was resawing some hard maple. He goes, "Man, I'm I'm cutting it. It's 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 going all wonky." I'm I go, "Yep." <laughs> That's what it does. And it really depends on the species too. Something that's, that has a really open grain pattern is going to be more susceptible to move. It's going to be able to take on moisture more easily than something mm-hmm. with a very closed grain. Right. So that's all I got, man. Well, that's the last question. So, uh, so I think now we're going to move on to our woodworker highlights. And in this section of the show, we're just going to talk about some makers that we really are enjoying on Instagram and that we think you should also take a look at. So Sean, why don't you go first? This week, um, I've been, uh, eyeballing this person or this company's Instagram. They just got their Instagram feed is very inspirational. I really like their style. There's Sakonet underscore makers, S A K O N N E T underscore makers. Uh, they do handcrafted five furn- fine furniture, custom cabinetry, and millwork, and they're out of Rhode Island. But I just I like their their uh, their design, their style. Some of their pieces with that are painted, and they have like a combination of like a, a curly maple top with the painted base. Or uh, I just really dig their style, and um, it's very inspirational checking their feet out. So give them a follow, check their, check out their stuff. I think you'll you'll like it. Guy, who do you have for us this week? I don't really have a woodworker, but this is a maker. I want to talk about. I found this on a news website. Doesn't have an Instagram account because he's a he's a young man. He's 14 years old. Uh, again, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I was just saying, you know, sometimes we think we're real clever. We come up with these great ways to solve problems, and we think we're so smart. We pat ourselves on the back. This kid is from Memphis, Tennessee. His name is Jackson Oswalt. This young man, at the age of 13, built in his bedroom, a working nuclear fusion reactor. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. It's it's just mind-boggling that a kid that young could build something like that from scratch. His parents financed it, and it's, it said he t- it took between eight to ten thousand dollars worth of parts. But his parents didn't help him at all. He just it's stuff he learned on the internet, you know, through forums and stuff. And he actually got the uh, Guinness Book of World Records for being 13 and and doing it. And he beat somebody else, some kid from Ar- Arkansas that was 14. Oh, that's now so you just cool, got to think about that. Next time you're in your shop and you're you're patting yourself on the back for how clever you are, think about a four, a 13 year old kid that built a nuclear fusion reactor. <laughs> <laughs> That'll put you in your place. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks guy for that wake up call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To talk about a humbling thing to read. So what, what do you have? We, all right. I've got Joseph Lamachia or Lamachia. I'm not exactly sure the pronunciation, but it's J O S E P H underscore L A underscore M A C C H I A. He's a furniture maker, and uh, he's got the modern design aesthetic, but not mid-century modern. He uses a lot of prismatic shapes and effects, making his pieces look really unique, some elements of cubism in there, and he kind of goes on a motif. So right now, he's using a lot of prismatic shapes, so uh, I'd keep an eye out for him because I'm sure he's going to come up with some new ideas that are really push the modern design aesthetic to its limits. So that's what I've got. Cool. All right. I think that wraps up the show. Please remember that this podcast is here to answer your questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions, woodworking questions, uh, you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who's left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Uh, guyswoodshop.com. Sean? Simplecove.com and at Simplecove on other social media sites. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks for listening. And guys, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. Later. See ya. <laughs>